can you have exclusive religious claims? Um, how can we talk about them? Can we talk about them? Should we talk about them? Those kind of ideas. And I want to remind you at the outset th- that REF is, the goal is for it to be a place to process things. Um, not everybody in here is on the same page about things. Everybody is in different places in life and processing different ideas. We want this to be a context that while you're at Stanford, you're in the classroom and you're learning a lot of the answer to a lot of how questions, how to do things well in life. REF, we want to be a context, uh, a fellowship that you can come into and struggle with the why questions of life. Um, so it's in process. Also, you all have my phone number and my email address on here. Um, there's several times throughout the week uh, that I get together with students, that Katie gets together with students. If you have questions about this stuff, please call me, please email me, please talk to me tonight. Um, we're not going to be able to address all your questions tonight on this issue. This is obviously a huge issue. We're not going to cover all of them. Um, but please, interact. Uh, you know, come grab lunch with us tomorrow, text me, whatever it is. And then here's my last uh, qualifier before I start. I borrowed heavily, heavily, heavily from Tim Keller on this. So um, I would point you in his direction if you wanted to discuss it more, if you wanted to interact with some more ideas and some more writers and thinkers. Uh, but I borrowed liberally from Tim Keller on this. Um, so I think that covers my bases. I'm not plagiarizing now. All of the credit uh, is given. But I'm going to read from John 14 to kind of get us started, and then we'll talk about these ideas. And this is a place where Jesus makes very strong claims about who he is. Uh, John 14:1. he's speaking to the disciples. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you have known the Father. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The grass withers and the flowers fade and the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the things that Jesus tells us about himself. And I pray that as we encounter them and as they make us uneasy in different ways, dear God, that um, we would encounter them honestly, that we would be um, diligent to bring our questions to you and that you would answer them, and that your spirit would be with us. Teach us in your name we pray. Amen. So our question kind of tonight, the the topic we're introducing, and it's a hard one, is this. How can somebody say that their religion is the right one? Um, Is it possible to say that? Should we say that? How should we go about saying it? And the reason we're talking about this is kind of three reasons. Again, I haven't been here very long, but just you pick up on this very quickly, and it's not just Stanford... It's the Western world uh, where this is an important topic to talk about. And the first reason is this. It's just kind of the elephant in the room on campus for everybody at some point during college, right? Every religious student, everybody, whether or not you consider yourself religious, everybody knows that we all have religious beliefs, that we believe certain things about God, about man, about right and wrong, um, and there's this tentativeness 
about kind of putting your set of beliefs out there in, in public discourse, right? What can I, can, is it okay for me to say what I think? Because I know if I say what I think, that might exclude people, right? It, there's kind of this hidden discomfort. I can speak from my perspective, right, from the Christian perspective. We have this discomfort that we know on some level that Jesus and the Bible makes exclusive claims, right? And what we're wondering is, can I just, do I have to deal with that, right? Do I have to, do I have to say anything about that publicly? Um, can I just kind of pretend it's not there, right? Which is not an intellectually honest position. And so what we want to do tonight is we want to thoroughly consider the Bible and not hide from things that are difficult to talk about. Um, we, want to, we want to address the elephant in the room. Because that's a hard question, especially at a place like Stanford where there's a wide diversity, a glorious diversity of beliefs about religions, um, and religious ideas speak to the core of who we are as humans, then the second reason is because we actually want to be in RUF consistently liberal. Especially RUF at Stanford. I think it's imperative that we be consistently liberal. And this is what I mean by that. You're in class and you're hearing different schools of thought on economics and on history and on philosophy and on education. And the university is a place that you come and interact with all the divergent theories in each of these fields. And you find out there are people on different sides in each of those fields, right? And it's actually not even those fields. It's also in chemistry and biology and mathematics and geophysics, right? Even the hard sciences. There are people who disagree on separate sides, right? And the beauty of the university system in this education is that you come and you hear everything. And you weigh and you consider and you learn, right? We want to do that with religion too. Religion is, is your belief about humanity, about right and wrong, good and evil, about God, about the origins and the direction of history. And in that most fundamental sense, everybody has religious beliefs. Whether or not you would say you're a theist or not, whether or not you believe in God, in this broad sense that I'm defining religion, you have religious ideas about what good and bad is, whether or not God exists. And so we want to be consistently liberal. The university is a great place where you can interact with ideas. So let's interact with our ideas. Let's not hide these and not interact with them, right? So it's the elephant in the room. We actually want to be liberal. And thirdly, and this is kind of maybe the reason, the most pertinent reason is this, is because religion divides. That is true. Uh, re religion has been the cause of a lot of violence, of oppression, both on a macro scale and a micro scale, right? Uh, you can look at world history over the last 15 years, last 30 years, whatever it is, and see that religion has been the cause of a lot of violence. One rabbi said after 9-11 that it was religion that drove the planes into the buildings, right? But also on a micro scale. And you can walk around on campus and see that people have kind of separated themselves into different belief systems, right? It actually divides people socially to some degree. Some of that's unavoidable. Maybe that's not all good, though, right? Um, it would be irresponsible for us to say that it, that's not true, that religion is not the source of division, of animosity, uh, of oppression, of unfairness. And here's how we kind of get there. Here's where religion gets to that point. This is, this is straight from Keller. Um, he kind of gives this genealogy of what happens when you attach yourself to religious belief and how that eventually leads to maybe you discounting, dismissing, feeling self-righteous over other people that don't hold your exclusive set of beliefs. The first thing is you arrive at, I have the truth and you don't, right? So you encounter truth and you realize, I have the truth and someone else doesn't, right? 
And so immediately what that does is, if I say I have the truth and I live according to it, that leads to a sense of superiority, right? Over the person that doesn't have the truth. And when you develop that sense of superiority, you actually naturally separate from one another. Because I understand life and they don't. And when you separate from somebody, you, you cease to actually understand who they are and so you caricature them, right? Since you're not relating to them anymore, since you don't have this degree of mutual respect, but rather you now see yourself on the high moral ground and them in the kind of naive, ignorant position. You can't relate to each other. You don't understand them, so you caricature them. That is, you misrepresent who they really are. And once you caricature somebody, the very next step is to marginalize them. Because you've no longer made them a person you can interact with. You've made them a caricature, right? And marginalization and oppression and all the things that arise from the hard things about religion all follow down that path. I have the truth and you don't. So I'm separate from you. And now I'm going to caricature you. And now it's okay for me to marginalize you. Right? So that's what we want to deal with tonight. Um, and what I want to do first is this. is I want to address some common solutions that have been offered to deal with that tension. And then I want to suggest what I think is the way the Bible deals with that tension. Um, we, one of the things in RUF is uh, we want to be upfront about what we believe. And so I think... Scripture has something to teach us about it. But before we do that, I want to say, I want to address different ways that we've tried to deal with the, the divisiveness, the difficulty of making exclusive religious claims. And the first thing that we do, and this is not comprehensive, but I hope to kind of give you a general framework, and, and I think you'll see a pattern in all of these, is we modernize religion. And what I mean by that is we kind of think, all right, we're growing into our understanding of the natural world and the scientific community and all that kind of stuff. And as we grow... In the modern world, we're going to find out and discover that religion is a fantasy, right? It eventually will get explained away by science. As science uncovers more and more about our understanding of life, uh, religion is just going to kind of thin out and evaporate. And there's two different ways that we explain it away in that regard that we kind of think, well, we're, we can just kind of modernize religion. We can thin it out. And the first one is um, the biological explanation. And what I mean by that is... Um, the way an evolutionary biologist or evolutionary philosopher uh, explains away religion, they would actually say, well, there's actually an evolutionary reason for religion. This is what Nicholas Wade said, who wrote The Faith Instinct. He says, religions are machines for manufacturing social solidarity. They bind us into groups, right? If we create a religion, it brings us a group of people together. Long ago, codes requiring altruistic behavior and the gods who enforce them helped human society expand from families into bands of people who were not necessarily related. We didn't become religious creatures because we were social. We became social creatures because we became religious. Or to put it in Darwinian terms, being willing to live and die for their co-religionist, being willing to live and die for the other people that is a part of your religious group, gives our ancestors an advantage in the struggle for resources. In other words, here's what he's saying. The reason we created religion, the reason evolution actually produced in our minds this idea of religion, is because if we can all get together and worship one deity, that gives us as a group a better likelihood of surviving. That's the evolutionary reason put forward for our religion. So what it's saying is fundamentally this. Religion is hardwired into our DNA. It has no relation to the truth. It's simply a function that's hardwired into our DNA that helps us survive, right? This is the, under, this is the idea, and really that kind of 
evolutionary explanation of religion is this. They, they, what they're claiming is the reason that we think our thoughts, right, is because when we think our thoughts, they give us a biological advantage in our pursuit of survival. So the things that we think actually have no bearing on what's true or not, they're actually just pragmatic tools that help us survive. Now do you see the problem in this explanation? If the things that we think aren't true, but they're simply imaginations that help us survive, what about that thought? Does it apply to that thought that Wade or Daniel Dennett or others claim? Or are they going to claim, except for the thoughts that I'm thinking right now, that I've stepped out of the Darwinian or the evolutionary kind of lineage, and all of a sudden I'm free thinking. My thoughts are not determined by that evolutionary process. None of them claim that because they know they can't. Right? When they explain religion, saying that all ideas have no bearing on the truth, they're just tools in our brains to help us survive, the same then is applied to that idea they just expressed. Do you see what I'm saying? They've explained away their own explanation. According to that conclusion, the idea that all ideas are evolutionary tools is an idea about religion that's simply an evolutionary tool. They actually explain away their own explanation. So we try to modernize religion by explaining away biologically. The other way is kind of philosophically or anthropologically. This is more in the vein of Frederick Nietzsche, if you've encountered the genealogy of morals or any of his work. Um, but Christopher Hitchens kind of says it in simpler terms. He talks about how if two people have different ideas about how to behave or think, and then one claims that, okay, my idea is not just my idea, but actually God agrees with me, then it's a power grab, Right? All religion is an assertion of power. All religious statements are an assertion of power, right? So I say, I think you should wear blue shirts. And you say, we don't want to wear blue shirts. We think we should wear whatever you want. And then I say, well, God says you should think blue shirts. See, it's a power statement, right? This is how Hitchens, this is how Nietzsche explained religions came about. All religious statements are power statements for the purpose of either throwing off authority or subjugating another person. So either pushing authority off or actually establishing yourself as an authority. Again, the same problem arises. Is that statement a statement about religion? Does it expressly do what it says religious statements do? In other words, when you say all religious statements are an attempt to throw off power or to subjugate others, is that a religious statement that throws off power or subjugates others? Absolutely. They actually explain away their own explanation. <clears throat> and so the great kind of modern notion that as we become more and more sophisticated and knowledgeable about the natural world that religion is going to thin out, uh, it's proven false and actually it's kind of empirically being proven false because in Christian religion, at least within the tradition I know, the past 50 years has actually been the most explosive growth of Christianity that the modern world's seen. Uh, South America, Africa, China, Korea, all over the globe Things are growing much, much faster than they actually ever have. Um, so religion in the modern age is just as viable, maybe more viable than it's ever been. And those two explanations actually explain themselves away. They're not sufficient for dealing with the tension. So then what's the second solution? And maybe this is the one that's more pertinent. Maybe this is the one you feel. The other way we try to deal with the tension is we try to relativize religion. Uh, and this is where I think the discussion gets interesting. And we do it kind of two ways. 
primarily two ways. And the first one, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you've encountered this, maybe you've thought this, and, uh, and it's an interesting thought, is the idea like, the way we're going to deal with the tension is, we think all religions are valid and they all actually essentially say the same thing. And uh, there's a classic kind of an, uh, parable illustration of this. You've probably heard it, maybe you've thought it, is that um, we're all traveling a path up the mountain to the ineffable reality that resides at the top. And of course, you can't see all the way around the mountain until you get to the top. And when we get to the top, we're going to find out that in fact, all the other religions were different paths up the same mountain. Right? This is the posture of thinkers of guys like John Hick, if you've heard of him. And he argues in his book, Christian Theology of Religions, he says the different religions are culturally and historically conditioned responses to an ultimate ineffable reality that's the source and ground of thinking. So what he's saying is this. There's a God. He calls it the ineffable reality. And he's saying that all religions are functionally the same. There is one God, but each religion is just that culture's particular way of conceiving of how we connect to God. Right? So each religion is simply just a cultural way in these different places and different times that we conceive of connecting to that God. And he would say to somebody like me, right? Of course somebody who grew up in Alabama believes in Jesus. Right? That's perfectly in line with my culture. You know? He's saying your religion is culturally conditioned. You think just like an upper middle class American Southerner born in the late 20th century. I think, I do. I, I, I take responsibility for that. I think, just like an upper middle class American Southerner born in the late 20th century. I hope you come back to RUF, but that doesn't offend you. Um, but here's where, here's where that notion that all religions are the same begins to fall apart. The first problem and the biggest problem is it's internally inconsistent. Again, it's, it's very similar to the first objections. Here's my question. Wouldn't it be just like a mid-20th century liberal religion philosopher to say something like that? In other words, his thoughts about religion are actually just a product of his culture. Except, and this is where it's the most problematic, he's claiming to occupy the very uh, position that he denies everybody else. He's claiming to occupy a place above the mountains, right? Free from his own cultural conditioning, with the ability to see everything. He's absolutely a product of his culture. Therefore, he absolutely can't, can't claim the position that he says nobody can claim to occupy, right? It's defeated again on its own premise, right? So it's internally inconsistent. He, he again, is subject to his own critique. But secondly, it also disregards and discounts real fundamental differences between their religions. Aside from being subject to his own critique, the position ultimately is actually deeply disrespectful to the differences in religions. Zen Buddhism doesn't believe in the existence of God. Uh, they don't want to be restored to God. To tell them that they're the same as Christians is actually naive and unsophisticated. Depending on the brand of Hinduism you encounter, you can encounter polytheism or pantheism. Uh, the Buddhist conception of... It's, it's irresponsible to say this, of heaven, which they would call nirvana, is actually a release from all your desires. That's what heaven is, right? For the Christian, the new heavens and the new earth are actually the fulfillment of all our desires. 
we're in stark opposition with each other. There are real, like, foundational, fundamental differences. And when I've read, this past week, I read several writers on this, and, uh, and, they, and they call themselves Christians, and, and, you know, I don't know where they stand, but this one particular writer uh, calls himself a Christian, and he says, you know, all religions are the same, and what he does in the course of his explanation that Christianity is the same as everything else is he talks about his encounter um, with uh, Hinduism. And he says, what I've found out is that Jesus is really an avatar. And what an avatar is is a manifestation of Vish- Vishnu, the supreme being in Hinduism. And what he's done is this, is he's taken Christianity and he's peeled away all the distinctives and taken the words out and emptied them of their meaning. Words like Jesus, words like salvation, words like God, words like scripture. And he's pressed them into the mold of Hinduism. So he's actually not saying relig- uh, Christianity and Hinduism are the same thing. What he's actually doing is he's t- simply taking the semantics of Christianity, destroying the doctrinal distinctives, and then pressing it in the mold of Hinduism. He's actually practicing Hinduism, but just with different words now. In other words, he's not even demonstrating that they're the same thing. He's taking one religion and forcing it into the other. They're not saying all religions are the same. He's actually arguing that Christianity is Hinduism. That's what he ends up arguing. Because the reality is, within Orthodox Christianity, there's only one of two ways you can view Jesus, right? You've probably heard this before. There's only one, there's only two viable options. Jesus either is who he says he is, he's the one way to God, he's the son of God, he's the lamb who came away to take the sin, who came to take away the sins of the world. And if that's true, everything he says is of utmost importance, right? Or he's a frightening lunatic and he should be disregarded. There's, n- there's not a reasonable third position that he's the deluded lunatic, but we should base our lives around his ethical teachings. <laughs> and Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't conquer death, Christians should be pitied. Paul recognizes that. Like, don't waste your time on the Christian thing if Jesus isn't who he says he is. And what religious pluralism, this notion that all religions are the same, says is if you just deny all of your distinctives and then believe what I believe, we'll all be the same. Do you see that that's not a different posture from any other religion? But it masks itself as tolerant and humble. Right? At least the rest of the religions are actually honest. We have real differences, and we still think you should believe what we believe, right? So it defeats itself. Um, it also disregards the fundamental differences, and then ultimately it's actually just as narrow as any other truth claim. Um, to say that nobody should impose their religious views on anyone because they're all the same, that's a particular religious view, right? That you're trying to impose on everyone else, Right? However, by choosing not to recognize that, in fact, you're just like everybody else, imposing religious beliefs, you actually falsely believe that you occupy a moral high ground, right? And falsely occupying a false moral high ground is the place that intolerance and superiority are bred. I mean, that's, those are the seeds of oppression, right? I've been in a setting before at, at South Carolina where I was, di- I was dialoguing with a relativist Christian, a Christian who said, you know, all religions are the same, and a Jewish rabbi. And the rabbi and I had a great conversation with a lot of mutual respect. We learned a lot. We discussed ideas. Neither one of us could interact with the relativist because he kept pretending that we didn't have different ideas. And at the end of the day, 
the rabbi was so offended, he screamed at him and goes, listen, if you believe in Jesus, pray to Jesus. He was trying to get the Christian guy to be a Christian guy. He, he literally said, we don't believe the same thing. That guy ended up being much more offensive than I was to the Jewish rabbi. Right? So each religion basically teaches the same thing, falls on its own premise. Um, it's actually not respectful of the differences. And, and it's ultimately just as narrow as any other truth claim. The other kind of posture, the other way uh, people have tried to relativize religion is this. Every religion has part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Um, again, it's kind of illustrated through this parable. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary in India for decades, and he said he heard this parable over and over and over again. Um, maybe you've heard it. It's about the blind men having, learning how to describe an elephant. There are three blind men. Uh, they approach an elephant, and someone standing back from them says, what is it that you're encountering? And one guy says, uh, an elephant is something that's long and flexible because he's only touching the trunk. Um, another blind man says, um, it is, it's stocky and round because he's touching the leg. And another blind man says, no, 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 y'all are wrong. An elephant is long and wide and flat because he's touching the side. And so this parable is kind of given to say all religions have a portion of the truth, just a part of it. But you can't really say that you have the whole truth. And it sounds like a very humble proposition, right? But this is what Newbegin says. This story is told constantly in order to neutralize the affirmations of all the great religions to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But the real point of this story is exactly the opposite. If the king, the person observing this, were also blind there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it's immensely arrogant. Uh, it is the immensely arrogant claim of the one who sees the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. In other words, the one who takes this explanation, again, assumes the position that they've denied everybody else. Right? The place outside where they can see everything. So they're saying, you all see in part, you can't claim to have the whole truth, but I can. You can only argue that every religion has part of the truth if you can see the whole truth, and that's the very thing they said no one has. So it falls again on its own premise. That's what's similar about all of these things. And a couple of conclusions before we move on to, the, uh, to that second point. A couple of conclusions about all these suggestions about how to deal with exclusive religious claims. And these are things that I think, these things are important, and, um, and we don't want to admit, but I think will be healthy. For, uh, for everybody to admit, Christian and I. And the first point is this. Everybody's an evangelist. Everybody, everybody, and by everybody I mean everyone that's ever been born is an evangelist. So not just everybody except for you because you're sensitive. No, you're an evangelist too. Um, this, is a, and the beauty, this is a really good thing that everybody's an evangelist. It sits at the bottom of all human dialogue and discourse. It what's, it's what makes being human interesting, the fact that we're all evangelists. Everyone is trying to convert others to their way of thinking. Everybody is, and that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. That's a glorious thing. That's one of the reasons you came to Stanford. Here's what I mean. Do I think that you should think a certain way about Jesus, God, and life and faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's why I'm here. Well, Elizabeth and I raise money and move across the country because we think it's so important. We absolutely believe that. 
I think there are certain things you should believe about Jesus, about the Bible, about God, about life and faith. And they're very specific things. I think Jesus should be the center of your life. I think you will find freedom. I have found freedom and life and forgiveness and healing because of who Jesus is. I think you should find him. I hope that you find him. Let me ask you this question. Do you have ideas about Jesus, about God, about life and faith? And maybe even your ideas are this. No one, should persuade, uh, no one should try to persuade someone to their way of thinking about Jesus' life, God, and faith. Maybe that's your idea about them, right? Would you like me to see your way on that issue? Would you like, me to, con- would you like to convert me to your way of thinking on that? Yeah, you would. That's okay. But you're an evangelist. Do you understand that? You're trying to convert people to your way of thinking as well. You want them to come around and agree with you and your thoughts about religion, even if your thoughts are, I don't think people should impose religious thoughts on others. That's a religious thought you're trying to impose on others, right? Does that mean you're inconsistent? Kind of, a little bit. Yeah, it does. But more so, it means that you're human and that you're interesting. Okay? So at least be savvy and honest enough to admit that you have a way of thinking that you think people should accommodate to. I love this quote from, uh, this is the only time we have like a pop culture quote, from um, Jerry Maguire, when Jerry and Rod are fighting. If you all are familiar with that movie, Jerry's the sports agent, Rod Tidwell's the uh, NFL receiver, and they're fighting, and Jerry's unnerved by it, and Rod says, no, 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 that's the difference between us. You think we're fighting, and I actually think we're finally talking, because we put all our cards on the table. Okay. We're all evangelists. That makes us human. That makes us interesting. And if you think, if this is your thought, people shouldn't try to persuade people to their religious point of view. That's a point of view that you're trying to convert people to. And if you can't see that about yourself, then you're actually on the path to self-righteousness that leads to the sense of superiority and to separation and so forth. If you can't be honest about that. So, everybody's an evangelist. Conclusion number one. Secondly, narrow doesn't mean wrong. This is the hard one. This is also a hard one to digest. It does not logically follow that because something is narrow, it is therefore wrong. We actually don't act that way in any other area in life. And this is what I mean. If I told you that the way to get to SFO is to go north on 101, you wouldn't go, that's so narrow. Right? And I would say, no, no, you're really wrong about this, and I am narrow on this. If you go south on 101, if you go south on 280, if you go west on 92, you will not get to SFO. You can't simply dismiss what I say simply because it is the only way to get there. That's not a reason for dismissal. Do you see that? Some things, many things in life, are actually narrow. Being narrow does not logically therefore follow that it is wrong. And actually, I would even kind of say, it's probably a safer conclusion that if something's not narrow, it's more suspect. But that's kind of another conversation. But, um... Everybody's an evangelist. Narrow doesn't mean wrong. And everybody has absolute beliefs that exclude others. Everybody has absolute beliefs that exclude other beliefs. The claim that all truth is relative is obviously it's immediately defeated on its own premise. The difference... Everybody believes in absolutes. The difference is actually simply in how we publicly present our beliefs. Everybody believes in absolutes. There are fundamentally, there's just kind of two kind of people that believe in absolute truth. They're the people who are overt about it, who put their cards on the table, and there are people who are covert about it, who say, no, I don't believe in absolutes. 
right? The overt absolute, again, in RUF, we want to be that. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he is God incarnate, that he died for the sins of those who trust in him, that the Bible is the word of God, that man has inherent value. We're overt about the absolutes we believe in. Um, people of other faiths were self-conscious about the fact that their beliefs, if true, would exclude others. They're also overt absolutists, right? But then they're covert absolutists, and this is the type of language they use. Their public presentation of thought is more subtle, and at the end of the day, it's actually deceptive and misleading. And this is the language, right? I don't believe in absolutes. I think all religions are valid. I don't believe in absolutes. I think all religions have part of the truth. I don't believe in absolutes. I think people shouldn't impose their beliefs on others. Those are all statements of someone who believes in absolute truth that excludes other belief systems. Everybody believes in absolute, absolute truths that exclude other beliefs. The idea that truth is relative is a self-defeating myth, and it's merely a coping mechanism that we've conjured because we don't know how to deal with the problem of how to interact with people that we disagree with, especially on fundamental ideas like religion. Everybody has exclusive beliefs, and that's why we're going to talk about the second point for a few moments. At the end of the day, the question is this. Which set of ex exclusive beliefs produces the most humble, peaceful, reconciling, and loving behavior? Everybody believes in exclusive beliefs. Which set of exclusive beliefs b brings healing in the world? That's actually the question. And so I want to propose that in, within historic Orthodox Christianity, there's a way forward. And uh, there are two postures, essentially toward kind of life and toward truth. And uh, the first one, as we kind of discuss Christian exclusivism, there are really two narratives that we all live. We all live one of these two. And to some degree, maybe we live in both a little bit. And the first one is this, the self-salvation performance narrative. Again, if this language sounds familiar, I stole it all from Keller. But um, the self-salvation performance narrative is this. I believe and do the right things according to the truth that I arrived at. I believe and do the right things according to the truth I arrived at, whatever it is, right? I've chosen to be liberal enough. I've chosen to be conservative enough. I've chosen to be moral enough. I've chosen to be tolerant enough. I've chosen to be religious enough. Maybe it's I've chosen to be secular enough. Maybe I've chosen to work hard enough. And in this posture, what you believe is, I'm the enlightened one, Right? And you're not. Because I've chosen to be secular enough. Or I've chosen to be tolerant enough. Or I've chosen to be conservative enough. Right? I've been enlightened to this truth that these other people aren't enlightened to. And you see it creates a sense of self-righteousness. Right? Because it's based on your performance and your own self-discovery and you living according to that truth. Right? I mean, I worked hard to get here. Right? When it's your effort and your thoughts about your own self that distinguish you from others it creates the sense of self-righteousness, right, and the superiority. That in, in its best situation, in its best manifestation, is merely patronizing of others, right? Oh, y'all are pr primitive religious people, y'all are primitive, you know, conservative people, y'all are primitive, lazy people, whatever it is. In its worst manifestation, it becomes oppressive, right? See, if you take secularism into the center of your life, if, that, if that's the truth you take into the center of your life, then what you will always think is you'll always think, oh, you foolish, backwards religious people. You know? If you take tolerance into the center of your life, you will think, oh, you foolish, 
fundamental religious people that still think you have distinctions. If you take moral living into the center of your life, you'll think, oh, you bad moral people, immoral people, right? You deserve what you get. If you take religious relativism into the center of your life, you would think, ah, you you kind of ridiculous religious people that aren't sophisticated. If you take success and achievement into the center of your life, you'll think, ah, you idiot lazy people, I'm going to die right at Stanford. Y'all are going to work for me one day, right? What's the, uh, what's the meme about Cal? I don't normally talk to Cal students, but when I do, I order large fries, right? <laughs> um, whatever truths you take into the center of the life, into the center of your life, they're going to separate you from those that don't take those truths into the center of their life, Right? And you'll be on the path to discord and lack of peace. And here's the thing. This is what's crucial about it. You're never going to have certainty that you've done enough. But you'll be arrogant and think yourself as better than others because you'll, you'll, be, you'll, you'll think that you've been better than most. So you'll never have certainty that you've done enough. And at the same time, you'll oppress others because you'll think, I've done more than most. Right? So that's the self-performance self-salvation performance narrative. And what I want to suggest here is that there's a separate narrative that we can live into, and it is the Christian narrative, and we're calling it the grace narrative. Uh, in John 1.14, we're told about Jesus that he, come, he came full of truth, full of truth, claiming exclusive religious truths, but it is truth and grace. The grace narrative that sits at the heart of biblical Christianity is this. The first thing that you take into the center of your life is this. It's not popular, it's not cool, but this is the first claim. This is how Christianity breaks in your heart. The first thing that comes in the middle of your life and the center of it is, I am not a good person. I'm not a good person. I couldn't do right, and the right that I do appear to do is actually all out of self-interest. Now, tonight's topic is not about arguing, are people basically good or basically bad, but I'll say one thing on that matter really briefly. Nobody, every, the biblical position is that people are basically bad. Um... No one's ever argued that people are basically good when you're in traffic, when you're in the middle of a divorce, when your teacher messes you over, when your friends leave you out, when you're in a fight with a parent, uh, or when you're in a foxhole. In other words, when you're in the middle of experiencing real life, nobody argues that people uh, are basically good. This is the way David Foster Wallace says about being detached from our thoughts. He says... The most dangerous thing about college education, in my own case at least, was that it enables my tendency to over-intellectualize stuff, to get lost in abstract arguments inside of my head, and simply, instead of simply paying attention to what's going on right in front of me. Right? Paying attention to the world and the life that's going on right in front of me. Here's my point. We only think of humanity as good when we think about it abstractly out there um, when we have for a moment set aside the life we're living and the frustration of it right there's basically only two places people say ever ever you'll ever hear people say basically that humanity is good classrooms and coffee shops right those are the places where we can detach and have an abstract philosophical conversation and forget for a moment how hard life is and how much we've hurt people and have been hurt by people right so the grace narrative says the first truth is this that the truth comes into your life not because of who you are or what you've thought or what you've done, but actually in spite of who you are, what you've thought, and what you've done. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is Paul's language. Of whom I am the foremost. 
the first step into Christian truth, this is the beauty of it, destroys any developing sense of superiority. You see that? And you can never get on that narrative of superiority, separation, caricature, oppression. Because the first step into understanding Christianity destroys any possibility of developing superiority. The grace narrative says, while we're still sinners, Romans 5, Christ died for us. And this is the beautiful thing about it. Unlike the performance narrative, you actually do have certainty because your salvation is up to Jesus instead of up to you. In the performance narrative, you're never sure you've done enough. In the grace narrative, you have certainty because Jesus has done enough. Secondly, you'll have humility instead of arrogance because you'll always know that I never did enough and I was never good enough. Whereas in the performance narrative, you're always arrogant because you're always thinking, but I've done better than them. The performance narrative gives you no certainty and makes you arrogant. The grace narrative gives you certainty and humbles you. Right? Real Christianity, biblical Christianity, the very first step destroys any possibility of you believing that you're better than anybody. This is what Jesus offers. He offers truth without superiority. When Jesus says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, he's saying that the truth about God is displayed in Jesus. God incarnate. That's who Jesus is. And if the truth about God is known through Jesus, then what do we learn about God from Jesus? We learn this. He heals the sick. He cares for the broken. He befriends the friendless. He forgives the sinner. And he opposes the proud. This is why I have no problem telling you the street preachers know next to nothing about the real Jesus. There's a contingent of people who bear the name of Christian who exhibit disgusting forms of oppression and animosity towards people who think differently from them. But when you read the Bible, you can only conclude that they have very little understanding of who Jesus really is. They need the same humbling truth that I need and that you need. Who does Jesus get angry with in the New Testament? Matthew 23. Who does he oppose? Religious people with a sense of superiority that they derive from their own admiration of their theological thoughts and their ethical lifestyle. That's who Jesus opposes. This is what he says in Matthew 23. You outwardly appear good and clean, but you're full of death. You appear righteous, but you're actually full of hypocrisy. Now, who does Jesus comfort? The broken, the grieving, the anxious, the orphan, the widow, the sick, the outcast, the lost, the immoral... And I'm all of those things. Jesus offers truth without superiority. And he actually offers the most inclusive of all exclusive religions because grace gives hope to anybody. The performance narrative messes over people who are born into problematic situations, right? Abusive homes, unhealthy environments. Can you pull yourself out of that? Very few people can, right? Some people, very few, might rise out of it, but the vast majority can't. And it's actually, let's be kind of, again, blunt right here. It's kind of childish and naive and wrong-headed American idealism that says, you can pull yourself up by your bootstrap and achieve your dreams. That's not true. It's just not true. Some people will become great. A lot of people will, will want to become great, but can't. And it's because of the place they grew up, because of the parents they had, because of the socioeconomics of the situation. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. But the performance narrative offers them no hope. Right? Because what chance do they have? The grace narrative still holds out hope to them. Right? 
Because the grace narrative says it doesn't matter if you're smart or stupid, black or white, male or female, moral or immoral, beautiful or ugly, there's grace for you. Grace is inclusive. This is how you know you've begun to entertain the grace narrative instead of trying to relate to religion via the performance narrative. You sense that you have no right to do anything but show compassion on all people. You begin to sense that you have no right to do anything but show compassion on all people. Because grace actually unnerves you. When you encounter grace, it's how you know you've encountered it. It unnerves you. It makes you uncomfortable. Because you actually ask this hard question, well then why grace for me? And everybody needs to make a practice of asking that question daily. And then hearing what scripture answers to you. Why grace then for me? And this is scripture's answer. Not for anything that you've done, but because I wanted to. That's the answer of Scripture. Not because of anything you've done, but simply because God wanted to. And you know that you've really encountered that truth when it unnerves you, when it unsettles you. When it stops your heart from lashing out in judgment at anybody different from you, but instead actually calls you to move towards compassion towards them. Right? You can never think you're better than anyone. Jesus stops religious oppression because the first step in that story of superiority, it never gets solid footing because grace is poison for superiority. Grace kills self-righteousness. Because grace is not just a simple sentimental notion, it's actually a powerful action. It's the act of Jesus going to the cross and saying, I bear the penalty for your bad, I purchase your redemption, I restore you to God, I will redeem, I will pay the price that you couldn't. This is what Keller says. Christianity is the only truth system I know that allows you to believe that people who don't know the truth that you know might in fact actually be better than you. Christianity is the only truth system, religious system I know of that allows you to believe that people who don't know the truth that you know might actually even be better than you. Right? You could never have a posture that allows you to develop a divisive, arrogant sense of self-righteousness. Because the first truth is, I'm bad. And Jesus saves. What I believe is that of all the exclusive religious claims, this is the one that gives us the best chance at peace, at reconciliation, and giving us hearts of service, and patience, and compassion, and transforming humanity from violent coexistence of competing truth claims. The only solution to that is humility. What set, what set of religious clu, uh, truth claims could ever say this from Matthew 5.44? Love your enemies. Love, for the, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The only truth claims that could ever call you to do that are the ones that start with, I'm no different. I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead. Jesus made me alive. And there's grace for anyone who finds rest in Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. See, Jesus is the exact opposite of that narrative of, I've arrived at the truth, I separate, um, I caricature, and I oppress, because Jesus does the exact opposite. He doesn't separate, he comes into our experience. Right? He lays down his glory as king, as God, and he comes into our experience. And he doesn't caricature, he actually lives out our life so that he understands us. He doesn't disengage from us because he's wholly different. He actually comes in, and then he does the exact opposite of oppression. He brings healing. You see, Jesus does the exact opposite of that narrative of separation and caricature and oppression. 
He actually comes into our life. He understands our life. And he brings healing. Are you? I hope for you is a place to discuss and consider and process these truth claims. Everybody has a set of truth claims they trust in. Um, but in Jesus, I think we have a truth that doesn't engender a sense of superiority or caricature or oppression. We have a truth that begins with humility. And it gives us the tools to not actually just tolerate people who differ from us, but actually to move towards them with the love and the compassion and the grace that Jesus came to us in. Let's pray.